Welcome to the jungle, everyone, and another exciting episode of Everything Zen, where we discuss everything in the Zenoscope universe from steampunk and grim fairy tales to Robin Hood, Neverland, and so much more. This is Zenoscope. I'm your host, Mark Sells, and we're grateful to have you back with us for our Jungle Book-themed May podcast. The start of summer is right around the corner, the flowers are blooming, and the sweet smell of barbecue is in the air. We've got a great show for you this month, lots of new products and special events coming up on the Zenoscope calendar to tell you about, from live stream new release Wednesdays to a three-day cosplay-focused virtual con. It's going to be a blast. So stay tuned for all of that. Our master of giveaways, Chris Sampson, will be joining us in a little bit to share the details on some of the prizes we're giving away this month. He'll also be tag-teaming with Amber Curtis on an interview with M.L. Miller, one of the creators behind Zenoscope's The Jungle Book series. With Mother's Day coming up, Amber will also be sharing some fun facts around our mother and daughter team of Alice and Callie from Wonderland, We've got a special treat a little later in the podcast as our co-founder, Ralph Tedesco, and I sit down with a legendary actor from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Smallville, and Marvel's recent superhero series, Runaways. That's all coming up on this month's May edition of Everything Zen. The laws of the jungle are as old and as true as the sky. Many and mighty are they, but the head and the hoof of the law and the haunch and the hump is obey. Written in 1894 by English author Rudyard Kipling, The Jungle Book is a collection of stories about life in the jungle and the Darwinian struggle for survival. There's Tumai of the Elephants, Ka the Python, Ricky Tikki Tavi the Mongoose, and the White Seal. But the most well-known of all the stories is that of a young boy or man-cub named Mowgli, who is raised by wolves and interacts with a variety of animals from Shere Khan, the tiger, to Baloo, the bear. As he learns about his place in the world, learns respect for authority, obedience, and ultimately gains acceptance among his pack. Rudyard Kipling was born in India and spent many years traveling back and forth from his home in Dummerston, Vermont, where he wrote The Jungle Book and its follow-up, The Second Jungle Book, a year later in 1895. The stories were all inspired by ancient Indian folklore, like the Panchatantra and the Jataka Tales, stories that anthropomorphized animals to teach moral lessons. For instance, how to lead a simple and happy life, those good old bare necessities. And perhaps the most important lesson in the Jungle Book is how to face your fears, gain confidence, and triumph over them. Appearing in over 500 print editions and translated into 36 different languages, the Jungle Book has been adapted many times in literature from Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land to Italian-Japanese anime, to Chuck Jones' made-for-TV cartoons. Disney's 1967 animated film was a massive success with a memorable score, and Jon Favreau's remake in 2016 broke new ground with motion capture and very realistic talking animals. In fact, a sequel is in the works with Jon Favreau back at the helm, but no ETA is available on when it will start production. In 2012, 
Xenoscope stepped into the jungle with Grim Fairy Tales Presents The Jungle Book, a story by M.L. Miller. The story is about a young girl named Mowgli who is kidnapped by pirates along with three other children. And when their ship crashes ashore, only the children survive. Each is taken captive by a different tribe of animals and raised in the unforgiving jungle where they grow up and as teenagers encounter one another and are tested in the ultimate game of survival of the fittest. M.L. Miller will be joining us in a little bit to discuss his memories of The Jungle Book and the unique direction he took in writing Xenoscope's adaptation of Rudyard's classic. And we'll also be talking vampires, music, and comics with James Marsters, who played Spike in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, and oh, so many other memorable roles. It's a jungle out there, folks, so stay with us as we serve up some fun and games on another exciting episode of Everything Zen. I am Cher Samson, the muddy con of Kipling Isle, and today you will listen to my decree. The animal tribes have declared a mighty contest to determine the fate of this podcast. That's right. It is the podcast word of the month contest for the month of May. So whenever you hear this sound during the podcast, we will reveal a secret word or phrase. Email us at info at xenoscope.com with that word or phrase, and we'll send you a promo code to use on your next purchase on xenoscope.com. There's a limit of one submission per person. We will be doing a grand prize raffle drawing for one lucky winner from all the submissions. Our grand prize is a limited to 100 secret retail exclusive, The Jungle Book, Fall of the Wild, number three, cover E, by Paolo Pantelina and Ula Moss. We are also giving away three second place prizes from those submissions. The prize is a limited to 500 collectible, The Jungle Book 2016 Holiday Special, cover E, by Alan Otero and Ula Moss. So, listen carefully and email us at info at for your chance to win. Back to you, Mark. Thanks, Chris. The podcast contest runs throughout all of May, so you can send an email to info at xenoscope.com any day or time up until midnight on Monday, May 31st. The winners will all be announced on Facebook the first week in June. Now, to get things started for our Jungle Book-focused podcast, Chris and Amber are joined by M.L. Miller, comic book writer extraordinaire from Chicago, Illinois. M.L. Miller has penned numerous titles in addition to The Jungle Book, such as Pirouette, Grave Trancers, and Nanny and Hank, just to name a few. He'll be discussing the creation of Xenoscope's The Jungle Book with Mowgli and her friends. So stay close to Baloo and Bagheera as we discover the origins of The Jungle Book. Hi, Mark. Great to have you on the show today. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right into The Jungle Book. Could you give us some backstory on how The Jungle Book concept came to be and what type of research you needed to do to get the authenticity for the animals? A lot of the authenticity of the way the animals looked, that was all uh, Carlos Granda, the artist who who worked, who I worked with on that book. Um, he really did a great job of of just making sure that the animals were from sort of like the Indian era or the Indian region in India where the book is is sort of set. As far as research for me, I'm a, I was always a fan of Animal Planet back when Animal Planet actually showed animal shows. So I watched that 
just kind of nonstop. Um, and I also always described the Jungle Book kind of like um, Game of Thrones with animals, uh, where you have these kind of warring fractions of animals. Some of them run into each other. It's it's sort of a big island. They sort of run into each other, have these little battles, and then they go back off to their kingdoms and and um, mend their wounds and uh, do their kind of uh, palace drama that goes on. So that was kind of the hook that I, I kind of started with. Back when the Jungle Book started, it was right around when Game of Thrones was coming out and that was really hot at the time and I just saw it as a a nice parallel as far as a way to kind of set a a big epic war story between animal um, like I almost would uh, have loved to have done this without any humans at all and just had the animals do that but the humans really added a great element to it as well. Mowgli is such a great character. We did change her from a boy to a a girl and um, that was a suggestion but I also thought that that was one of the best things to do for this book, um, mainly because the female of the species is is often more deadly than the male in, in the animal kingdom and in the human kingdom, I guess sometimes. <laughs> so, um, so that was just a fun way to kind of really give uh, Mowgli even more personality and just more more to like about her. I was also uh, um, a therapist, and I, I still am, and I was working at a residential home for boys and girls, and all of these kids were sort of mis- misplaced, and they were kind of put with put with other families, and, um, and so that was also kind of a theme that I kind of stumbled upon as it was going on, where these four kids end up on this island, they end up having these adopted families, and then they end up having these traits of their of the animals it's not anything sort of mystical but it's more like they have attempted to uh, become them Uh, so i did look at kind of feral children there were a couple of documentaries and a couple of videos on youtube that had um, children that were grown up in the wild and and what they were like and so um, but i also wanted to make them kind of naturally a part of the family it wasn't until later in the series that it starts to really become evident that these humans are very different than the animals around them i think it's so cool that's super fascinating you tied in uh your experience with being a therapist and working with children and, and in the original jungle book abandonment and foster children that's a huge part of the original tone and theme so that's so cool that you took that spirit of the original work and expanded it on not just with Mowgli but with multiple characters or multiple children which was I think one of the most unique things about your version of the Jungle Book what was your thought process on fleshing out each of those characters uh, their relations to each other uh, and the relationships to the animal tribes. I really wanted to think about what character was placed in each tribe. And since they were all placed in each tribe at such very young age, depending on what animal they were kind of paired with, that kind of really influenced uh, their personalities. Bomani, who is a, uh, um, he is with the tiger tribe, the share, the, with Shere Khan, he has an inferiority complex because he is not as fast as the rest of the tigers. He's not as deadly. He tries really hard to be as deadly as Shere Khan and the rest of the tigers, but he just can't do it. He's not as graceful. He's not as, he's not as strong compared to any other human. He's super strong and he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, not he doesn't have superpowers but he's definitely adapted to the jungle with Akili she's with the smaller animals in the jungle and she sort of has a little bit of an inferiority complex but she's turned that around as where she's kind of like their superhero they all sort of look up to her literally but also in a sense that she is their 
she's kind of like this masked superhero of the jungle where she's got a sidekick that's at Tabaki the Fox and they uh, kind of jump around the jungle and get into adventures. And I base those sort of like on 66 Batman and Robin sort of thing where they're kind of talking in these, this kind of bold uh, superhero speak, but uh, really having this uh, sense of that they're the giants in the jungle. And with Dewan, he is with the... Uh, apes the bandar log and so they are the ones that are chaotic they're all over the place and he is probably the most damaged of the group not only are the apes uh all messed up and, and just kind of they're crazy they're they're running around they live in the pirate ship that crashed there so they're wearing some of the pirate clothes there was opium in the pirate ship so they occasionally do the opium in there and uh, so uh dewan is kind of messed up with that as well he's kind of like the wild card you never know if he's going to be a good guy or a bad guy um he's just impulsive and um and just really trying to uh He's trying to get, he's trying to fit in. He, when he meets Mowgli, you can tell he kind of likes her, but at the same time, he doesn't know what to do with that. So it's this this reaction is just such a confused way, and that's what I kind of uh, wanted to have. These this is really the first time any of these tribes have really intermingled because of this agreement that they've all had at the very beginning of the series. These kids, due to their natural curiosity of wanting to to kind of group themselves together as well, kind of break those borders, and that sort of rekindles this giant animal battle that um, has been going on for, for ages and ages that on the island. Again, you touched upon, you know, some great stuff and you're sharing a lot of information, which is so helpful for the insight because we never really get to dive into that, right? Everybody reads the story, but they'll never understand what your process is. And yeah. so here's a fun question that Chris wrote, which animal tribe would you live in if you grew <laughs> up there and why? I would kind of like to have fun with the uh, the apes of, of Bandar Log. That was that would be pretty fun. Um, it might get old though, uh, because it's like you can't party forever. You know, you can't just just constantly do that. Um, and me getting older, you know, I've I've realized my limitations. So maybe I I, I think that uh, Mowgli's tribe with the wolves, they're noble, they're strong, they're they're good guys, but they're not trying to police the. They're just kind of trying to live in peace. And I kind of like, you know, these days it's, it's you know, I, I like peace, I guess. So I think right now that in my current mindset, the wolves would be the most uh, appealing to me. But occasionally I'll visit the the apes on the, the apes and just party down sometimes. Yeah, the, the, the apes <laughs> cut loose. I love it. Yeah. They yeah. do. I would, when I was reading it, like it was crazy in there. I was like, yeah. what? Well, I would give uh, ins- well, I would give little hints for um, Carlos to just kind of just go nuts with the apes and have all this activity in the background. Like, there's constantly stuff happening, and and Dewan is constantly fidgeting with things like juggling skulls or or just kind of just wandering around, hanging upside down, swinging from the rafters. Uh, and he really communicated that activity really well. Speaking of animal tribes, there's there's one in particular which hit really home for you and for Amber and I. So these are the, the, the butter, the butter bird, the Baloo's bear tribe. And yes, like, they're, yes. they're basically a blood frenzied cult. And, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I know, and I know like you're a huge fan of horror. Uh, we are as well. So uh, uh, we were really excited to find out that you wrote for a decade, uh, a bunch of horror reviews. You currently, uh, host a YouTube channel all about horror-related uh, pop culture stuff. Did you feel your love of horror affect your writing process in any way? Because I, when I was when I found about that and I was reading the Bear Tribe stuff, it's like, oh my god, this is 
this can't be a coincidence. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it sort of it sort of gets a lot darker when as the story goes on because you you know the 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 tribes they get back into this war, so war is a pretty dark thing. And I yeah, I I mean I grew up watching hard, almost nothing but horror and with me reviewing horror movies still and and watching tons of it it's definitely an influence here and there in the jungle book there are going to be little references to cult leaders and little little moments from movies that I've kind of sprinkled in there that pop out that if you've seen the movie you'll you'll notice it if not that's fine it just gives a little extra layer of, of context there but I think that uh, horror is definitely something that that has always been a part of my work it's just I've I I don't know I kind of live and breathe it so it's it's I, I don't think I could write anything that is doesn't have kind of like a horrific take to it. Even though the Jungle Book can be a very uplifting story and it has its highs and lows. And it, I kind of ended it on a high note with sort of like they're becoming peace. But I also had a suggestion that, you know, that peace is temporary. It's there's it's going to go crazy again, uh, especially with Ka, the giant snake. Um, he was all horror, you know, his origin where he basically just eats all the rest of the snakes on the island and becomes this giant giant snake um so that's the reason why he's the only snake on the island and i just loved um looking at the original story and then wondering why is there only one snake why why is bagheera the only panther there um you know but they have a they have all these tigers but bagheera is the only panther same thing about baloo i was wondering where where he came from and what about the rest of his tribe and you come to find out that they have been kind of living in the caves underneath they've been kind of hibernating for all of this time because of certain things that were going on there it's all it kind of works kind of like a machine but at the same time the those little side stories are where i kind of explain uh explored the horror a lot a lot more uh you touch upon obviously like animals horror that there might be some hidden meetings to things. I have a quick question kind of on the spot. Sure. If who is your favorite horror animal? Like out of all the <laughs> movies like Cujo, Anaconda, like Pet Cemetery, oh, who's your favorite? Jeez, a horror animal. Uh, you know, I I always tell people that a uh, monkey is sort of like my spirit animal. Um, and any movie where there's like a monkey that goes kind of crazy. Um, there's a movie called Monkey Shines where a guy is trapped in a wheelchair and he's got a service monkey and the monkey goes nuts. And uh, and so he's trapped in this building with this monkey that that is carrying a razor blade. And he's the monkey has kind of fallen in love with his owner, but his owner has kind of fallen in love, fallen in love with someone else. And so um, that that just was a cool story for me. Um, anthropomorphizing these animals. Uh, we do it all the time with cats and dogs. And I do that with pretty much every, every kind of, anytime I do these animal, these kind of animal stories. Uh, I really do love that type of aspect in the story, mainly because animals are so unpredictable and they have, they do have personalities of their own, but to see them kind of trained in these movies, it's pretty awesome. Monkey Shines is probably one that kind of stands out to me as a, a really I gotta write that down i had never heard of that movie but same yeah. yeah it's it's from the late 80s it's really really good it's by george romero so oh really awesome good. yeah classic <laughs> i have a little bit of a tangent so this could be related to like what maybe your favorite uh animal animal or animal tribes that you wrote but uh uh just expounding further on that uh, like what event chapter arc in the entire trilogy uh, what's your favorite one to pen? And uh, were there particular characters, part of that arc that you that also brought you a lot of joy? Yeah, um, I and some of them are, are just really um, 
just guilty pleasures. Um, there's this little mouse character named Little Boo, and um, he's just really cool to kind of write um, in the very in the Jungle Book Winter Special that I did. It's the first time snow ever landed on the the island. Um, he's the first one that gets smashed in the face with a tiny little snowflake, but he's such a, he's a little mouse, so it, it felt like a giant thing. And he kind of runs around almost like Chicken Little, saying that the sky is falling at, on all of these places. Shere Khan is great. I love him as this kind of character that is wounded. He's um, he's grumpy. He's he's pissed off. He's sort of redeemed, but not really. He's still got these kind of like dark qualities. I always loved Baloo. I think I thought that he was a kind of cool character in the movies and uh, in the book. He was kind of like the cool uncle compared to the more strict Bagheera. I like that he his relationship with uh, Mowgli. I think that those sort of uh, relationships like that he was also like kind of like a guru kind of like a yoda almost character a mentor character and so writing his arc and expounding on his backstory and then having that come to full circle towards the end there where him and Mowgli kind of have a a face-off was a really kind of poignant thing that I really wanted to write I really wanted to put my all in that particular thing I mean, I love the elephants as well. Um, there's a little side story about Hathi, who is the smallest elephant, and he kind of grows into the biggest elephant. And there's this kind of exchanging of the guard with him and his father. Um, so many fun characters. That's why I love the Jungle Book. And I would, I, at any time, I would love to return to it um, just because there's so many stories that I feel I could still write, but it just depends on the time and the time and the permission basically <laughs> uh amber that actually leads it to one of your questions right yeah so kind of just to wrap this up uh mm-hmm. where would you like to see the jungle book storyline go if it's ever revisited i do have a couple of ideas um i don't want to kind of ruin them that much but um, <laughs> it definitely i mean i definitely would like to see Mowgli in a different environment and just kind of do a do maybe an arc with that and then have her return to the island and all hell breaks loose there and and so she's without her there something uh, you know it it starts getting really crazy so um that would be like my ultimate sort of plan i do have some ideas that i've been kind of throwing back and forth with the guys at xenoscope and i i would love to do that it, it all depends on kind of fan reaction and if people remember the jungle book and want to go back and and um write about it, tweet about it, do like Facebook about it, do message Zenoscope and tell them they want more Jungle Book. I'm sure they'll cave and they'll hopefully they'll give me a call and I can go back to it. So that's that's pretty much uh yeah, that's all I'll give. I you know, I but I I definitely have a lot of more stories. There's so many characters, you kind of just think, well, what would happen if this character was paired with this character and and have them go on a little side quest. You know, there there's just so much fun that you could have with it. Excellent. Uh, wow, that was that was awesome. Um, Mark, before <laughs> we let you go, I uh, for, for anyone who's listened to this podcast route and maybe they've never uh, read uh, your version of the Jungle Book, what would you say to them? And is there any projects or any en- endeavors that you want to plug? If I was selling it to somebody, um, I would just say um, if, if you like kind of uh, 
Game of Thrones. And if you're interested in complex relationships between different characters, um, this is definitely the book for you. It's It's got war, it's got comedy, it's got uh, horror, it's got all kinds of different kind of adventure and intrigue. And plus, I worked with some really talented artists on it. So I, I do definitely want to uh, let people know that the art is really excellent. Um, Zenoscope always has great art. And I think that um, this is one of the best looking one. And I was really lucky to get the artist that I got for it. And I would just show them a couple of pages of the mayhem um, of like the first series and, and just say that it just gets worse. It, it goes crazier from there. So that's that's probably how I'd sell it, I guess. But um, and as far as what I'm doing now, I have a couple of projects that I would I'm working on. I would love to talk about right now. But um, this is my book, Pirouette, where I was working with Carlos Granda, um, the artist from the first series. And so it's through Black Mask. It's called Pirouette. And it was just released last uh, November. November or December it was just released and it's never been it was never in trade and it it has issues in it that were never before published so that's one of them that I did um, and the second one was called Grave Trancers uh, which is with another artist James Michael Why Not and that's through Black Mask as well and um, I should be having another uh, series from them later on in the year and um, there are a couple other projects with some other companies that I can't talk about so <laughs> that's about it. If there is ever a you know chance, maybe I'll be. I'm hoping that to return to Jungle Book at some point. So that would always be fun. I reread Jungle Book for this for this podcast, and like it just brought back such great memories. Like Jungle Book's one of my all time favorite books. So thank you. I, so I much. wish for that too. So yeah, uh, yeah, Market. Thank you. Thank you so much for creating this wonderful work and for taking out the time to talk with us. And uh, yeah, so everyone out there, support Mark, read Jungle Book, it's the best. Thank you, Chris, Amber, and Mark. Now let's check out some of the exciting events coming up on the Zenoscope calendar for May 2021. May will usher in an all new set of metal cards, metal comics, and a sticker set. In the spirit of the Jungle Book, we've got a Jungle Book metal mini art print and Jungle Book die-cut and holographic stickers will be giving away all throughout the month. Have you ordered a set of the new XL Metal cards yet? If not, don't worry, there are still a few remaining of both sets 1 and 2 from April featuring all of your favorite Xenoscope characters. This month, we'll be releasing a superhero-inspired collection toward the middle of the month, limited to just 50 sets. New release Wednesdays include the latest in Grim Fairy Tales, number 48, a brand new Neverland 2021 annual, and our fearless archer, Robin Hood, takes on the menacing Voodoo Dawn in a one-shot issue on May 19th. Josh Burns is our May Featured Artist of the Month. We've got brand new Josh Burns art prints available on Zenoscope.com right now. He has a new sticker set available individually or part of a sticker set subscription, and some really cool metal cards set for release within the next few days to add to your collection. And finally, we've got lots of new products and collectibles to tickle your fancy. Don McTague's latest Cyberpunk collectibles will release on May 10th. We've got a very slick looking Van Helsing coffee mug that many of our staffers have already put dibs on. And if you're a fan of the Sun Kumanaki Movie Club cover from last month, you know the one. The one that you can actually hear when you look at it saying, I'll be back. We've got a limited edition 100-piece jigsaw puzzle releasing on May 12th, and it is awesome. Also rounding out the month, some really cool Zenoscope Mustang Matchbox-like cars 
to tie in with the Indianapolis 500. And lastly, don't miss our cosplay-focused live stream event on Thursday, May 20th through Saturday, May 22nd. That's right, three days of comic convention fun with special guests, new collectibles, packs, and all kinds of goodies, plus trivia and prizes. Not to mention a cosplay costume contest that you can still enter by submitting a photo of you in costume to cosplay at zenoscope.com. Ralph, Jason, Chris, and Amber are looking forward to seeing each of you on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. That's Thursday, May 20th from 6 to 8 p.m., Friday, May 21st from 1 to 5 p.m., and Saturday, May 22nd from 1 to 4 p.m., all times Eastern. For those listening for our podcast Word of the Month, the word for May is Kipling, as in Rudyard Kipling, author of The Jungle Book. Now, I couldn't be more excited about our featured guest this month. If you're like me and watched all seven seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and all five seasons of Angel growing up, you know him as Sunnydale's edgy vampire, anti-hero, and beloved character, Spike. He played Brainiac on Smallville, Captain John Hart on Torchwood, he starred in Caprica, P.S. I Love You, Hawaii Five-O, and was Victor Stein in Marvel's recent superhero series, Runaways. We'd be here all day going through his credits, which also include voiceover characters in Spider-Man, Star Wars, DuckTales, and Dragon Ball. He's an accomplished stage actor and an accomplished musician, both as a soloist and lead singer of the group, Ghost of the Robot. This month, co-founder Ralph Tedesco and I had a chance to speak with the incredibly talented James Marsters to talk about writing comic books, going on stage from Winnie the Pooh to Shakespeare, his illustrious acting career, his music, and of course, his iconic character on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Here's how our conversation went. James, welcome to our May podcast of Everything Zen. We're so thrilled to have you with us today. Right on. Happy to be here, man. Now, I read that your parents were involved uh, in church ministry and social work. And I was Mm -hmm. curious where your love for acting came from and what were some of your early inspirations? I, I uh, I did a production of Winnie the Pooh in fourth grade. And I played Eeyore. And I remember being very serious about it. I really wanted to get into the, really drill down into the pathos of Eeyore. (laughs) <laughs> so I took acting seriously from the very beginning. Uh, and then in sixth grade, uh, in the summer between my sixth and seventh year, uh, there was a small youth theater and we were doing a, uh, what was the name of that play? The Me That Nobody Knows, which was, uh, it's actually a really good play where inner city kids wrote monologues about their experiences. And then professional Broadway songwriters put uh put uh, songs on top of that. And it was a big hit on Broadway at the time. This is a long time ago. Uh, so anyway, in the little small town of Modesto, we did that play. And I remember singing a song in front of the, in, in front of the audience one night. And it was just going very well. And I just had the sense that we were all in the same room creating an event together, me and the audience and the cast, and we were all together uh, trying our best. Uh, and that sense of connection uh, just grabbed me. And uh, I decided at that point that I wanted to be an actor. Uh, I think I was 10 years old. 
Uh, and so I was one of those annoying kids who yeah. was just all about acting, 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 That's acting. That's early. That's pretty early, I feel like. Yeah, <laughs> pretty annoying. Because I started, when I've, I've mentioned my act, that I've done acting, I've uh, been an actor for a long time myself, but I didn't really get the acting bug till I was in college. Um, yeah, you're probably more sane. You know, that's probably the, what what a sane person would do. But I I uh, Got it. I just climbed in. Uh, cool. Yeah, and pretty much just churned out plays. Um, well, speaking of, of plays, like uh, I know you have an extensive you had an extensive career in theater, um, mm-hmm. and then you were doing theater in Chicago, um, and and, mm-hmm. and you form, I guess the formation of the New Mercury Theater as well. Um, yeah, and then, we started as the Genesis Theater in Chicago. Uh, and then I saw I saw Genesis on a vacuum cleaner, and I was like, you know, we get, we need a new name. Well, there's that, also that's not maybe Phil Collins band or the band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty good band too. Yeah, uh, Genesis. Yeah, and so we uh, we moved from Chicago to Seattle because we uh, the theater got uh, it got successful enough that we we decided it was time to put down roots. You know, get a board of directors, get a permanent space, all of that stuff. And about half of us decided that we didn't want to die in Chicago because whereas Chicago is a great city yeah. uh, and probably the DNA of me, of me as an actor is in as, as a Chicago theater actor, uh, didn't want to die there, man. The winters are brutal. Summers oh, yeah. are pretty brutal too with high humidity, high temperature. And so about half the company went to Seattle and we started producing there as new Mercury and yeah. had a really good run. Yeah. Um, yeah. was your, so when you're in theater, so you're doing theater, you're loving the stage, you're loving the idea of like, you know, the, the, the sort of the adrenaline rush of performing in front of people live, which is also always amazing. Did you want to transition to, to TV and film or was that always the plan? Was it sort of just like, Hey, we'll see. And then it happened. No, I became a father. Okay. You know? Um, and the, the, uh, I read an article that said that a man's, brain rewires when he becomes a parent Uh, and his his capacity for thinking ahead his capacity for uh not acting impulsively basically we kind of grow up a little bit when we become dads i'm sure the same thing is true with women but they didn't study that but i experienced this as the voice of god uh as my i'm watching my son get wiped off the blood get wiped off from, from the birth on the birthing table and i hear this voice in my head it goes go to los angeles whore yourself out <laughs> you have been having a great time being a starving artist but this little human being did not make that choice dude you've got to try at least to make money so i went down to los angeles uh and i told my agent that I, I'm not here for awards. I'm not trying to get a statue. I'm not here to try to prove myself as an actor. I did that over and over again in Seattle, Chicago, New York, San Francisco. And um, I'm here for money, man. I'm here for diaper money, doctor money, college money. So I'll be the new Urkel. I don't care. <laughs> right, right. You know, I'll, I'll be Alf. I'll be the new voice of Alf. No, I don't care. So she loved that because she knew she could make money off that. But when I got the audition for Buffy, I'd seen the movie and I was like, oh, not that. I don't want to think that low. (laughs) And they told my agent said, you know, it's it's a different thing. The writer is actually producing this and it's very good. And why don't you watch it? It's on tonight. So why don't you it's on right now, actually. Just watch it and call us back after the after you see the show. 
So I watched for 15 minutes and I called him back and I was like, holy crap, get me on this show. Yes, my God. Yes, this is amazing. Uh, And yeah, so I I, I lucked out because frankly, I got into, I came to prostitute myself, but I got into a show that was actually better written than most of the original plays I was doing. I mean, not better than Shakespeare, let's be honest, (laughs) but you know. Better than a lot of the original stuff I was doing, which was very good. But the Buffy writing was just tremendous. So I'm I'm a very, very lucky man. Yeah. I mean, and before we ask any Buffy questions, I did want to ask you a little bit more about the theater, like the adjustment. Please. Yeah. Okay, this is what, in theater, the curtain goes up and everyone has to shut the F up, man. And I get to go to work. Right. And no one interrupts us. Until it's over. We get like an hour and a half to three and a half hours right. to do our thing. And it's basically a sustained magic act. Mm-hmm. And like in, in theater, the whole cast is manipulating where the audience is looking at at any given second. Like most people don't know this. Everyone on stage is hyper aware of where the focus should be. And we are subtly controlling all of the eyeballs in the audience to look left, to look right, to look center stage. And there's whole rehearsals that are, that are devoted to this. Uh, there's, there's so much going on in theater. Uh, and I, I miss it terribly <laughs> because yeah. I learned, you know, I, I learned it takes a long time to get the toolbox necessary to do it. Uh, I was known as like a good actor. Like I wasn't ever like the best in Chicago. I was never the best in Seattle, but I was very proud to be known as one of the people you could depend on. Like he's a good actor. We can use that guy. He's good. Right. Um, and it took me a long time to get there. It took me a, a while to realize that I had to put that toolbox down and put it in the closet because those tools just weren't, uh, working for film. I feel I feel kind of bad now because I'm I, I want to go from that really great conversation about theater and now go back to the prostitution um, part. But <laughs> the, the first, <laughs> well, but this is the thing, man. I absolutely adore Buffy. I adore Smallville. I adore Torchwood. There's so many things that I've done that I'm actually very proud of for different reasons. Right. Uh, I'm a subversive oh. artist, and I think that fantasy and sci-fi is often able to be much more subversive than say cop shows uh, or lawyer shows. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about there too. The the first several years of watching you on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I could have sworn you were British. Uh, <laughs> could you talk a little bit about Spike? Like what the character, what about the character made you want the part and how you influenced like some of his key characteristics, like his accent, his trademark hair. Well, first of all, I'm only British if you pay me. And as far as I know, you're not, you're not paying me anything for this interview. So no, I'm not British <laughs> at all. No. Um, uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, like I, I, I wanted the role of, of Spike. I had no idea that it was going to be that large. I thought it was only a few scenes when I auditioned. I was overjoyed when I found the first script and I was all the way through it. It was like, what? Um, I basically just needed a job, man. Mm-hmm. That was my main concern was, hey, they're, <laughs> they're going to hire me for three to five episodes. 
paying me thousands of dollars each episode. My God, we're going to be okay. You know, let's get health insurance. You know, whoa, right. SAG health insurance, man, that's a big deal. Oh my God, yeah. But we were. Uh, let's see. I was told that um, they've been looking for someone to play the role for months, like six months, and hadn't found anybody. And they they were days away from filming. So they scraped the bottom of the barrel and found me. Like I, I never would have been called in for the role uh, if not for that. And so um, there was not a lot of prep time. Uh, and that really came. It was interesting because uh, they, they spray painted my hair black at first just to test it. You know, not spray paint, obviously, but this, this temporary color. And it didn't look good. And I, I remember the, uh, the, uh, the hair department just goes, so sorry um we're gonna have to bleach it white it's gonna be kind of painful but unfortunately with punk rock there's only two choices jet black or shock white right. nothing else is really truly punk so we're gonna have to go white we don't have a lot of time to do it so they bleached me one day and that was fairly painful but the really the thing was it only got canary yellow and we didn't have time to let to let the scalp heal so they we did it again the next day and that that freaking hurt man <laughs> that was like full-on sweats wow. you know trying not to cry in front of people i had just met uh uh just sitting in the corner just gutting it out um knowing it'd be worth it but um yeah i got into it and i i i basically kind of ripped off rudger hauer and blade runner a little bit and okay. and then I ripped off a, a walk that Malcolm McDowell did in this not great movie called Cat People back in the 70s. Uh, and he had a it's a this weird movie about people who turn into cats and it's kind of a horrifying film. And he, um, but he had this feline walk that I always remembered saying, like, I'm going to use that if it's ever if I ever play a predator. That's a great predator walk. Uh, so I used that. Um, the English accent was really not that great in the beginning. Uh, when I watched the early episodes, I cringe, right? Uh, because I had a work, I had workable accents for basically anything that you'd hire me for. So you know, Western European accents, European accents, I could do all of those. But that was I just had like an audition accent for those, and then you get the role and you work on it more. Um, but uh, I remember, I, I guess it was about my third or fourth episode, and they wrote the word bullocks in the scripts, uh, in the script. But it was an American writing the script, and so they misspelled it. And it was literally bullock, and I said bullock. And Anthony Head, who played Giles, who's an actual Englishman, right. came up to me, and he goes, "We don't say it like that, you prat. You are embarrassing me." in my homeland so i'm going to help you now <laughs> and he he kind of tutored me by force for six months uh until <laughs> that, I, that was a good lucky for you that you had somebody who was brave. oh my god i wouldn't be sitting here without that yeah that's crazy wow yeah how he are did you, it for free how are you that's nice how are you and how are you how's james and spike alike at all are they, do you have any qualities or vices you both yeah share? yeah it's but, all me it's all, you. it's all me. Well, yeah, like, um, like a lot of people think that actors lie or they give a false face. I, I, I think that bad acting is about giving a false face, whereas good acting is about revealing yourself honestly. 
Uh, and the truth is, I think any human being has maybe 15 facets to their personality, whereas a dramatic character really only has one to three, usually. Uh, it's just too muddy. It's too complex to have more because you don't have that much time to dig into the character to really have more than that. So I just plug in the different facets of myself that are appropriate to the character and then play those honestly. So Spike is all of my darker, uh, the darker parts of my personality, the loneliness, the isolator, um, the, judge, the judgmental guy, the guy who's rageful, all of the parts of myself that I try not to inflict on the world. You know, like I think the art of being a good person is not necessarily telling everyone what you're thinking all the time, you mm, know? Right. And there's a lot of nice people who are thinking all sorts of, all sorts of horrible things in their head. They just don't barf it out. Uh, and so th the spike in me is not charming. He's not funny. He's not someone you probably want to hang out with. But when you combine that side of me with the script, with those delightful, that delightful dialogue, that's when you get the character. That had to be so much fun to play for you. Oh, my God. Uh, incredible. Like the uh, role of a lifetime, really. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm very fortunate that I knew it at the time. I had I had I was 34. I'd been acting professionally long enough to know that, how singular this experience was. So I didn't hold back anything. I was like, give everything you have to this because this does not happen all the time. Uh, yeah, uh, I just when 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 writing is fabulous. It's like it carries you to shore on a warm wave. It's like body surfing in a warm ocean. It just, it just takes you to your destination. Whereas when the, when the writing is not good, you have to muscle it around and try to create something that's not really there. And it's, frankly, it's a lot of work. But when, when, when the writing is really good, all you have to do is begin. All you got to do is look at the other actor and start saying the lines. And then I would get inspired to do something that I didn't plan on. And it would just take me in a way I am in, in the, the fantasy. Um, real quick, I wanted to ask you about your comic book writing history, because I didn't know you had written a Buffy the Vampire comic. Was it for IDW? For Dark Horse. I got Dark I actually Horse. wrote two of them. I got it confused. My no worries. Um, no worries. And you, you, yeah, you, how did you get into that? Uh, how did yeah, you I, I, um, the first one was co-written with Christopher Golden who's a really good uh, yeah. comic book writer. Yeah. And um, that was after season two. And I was pretty much done. There was no plans to have Spike back after season two. So I was bemoaning the fact that I had no control anymore as an actor, as we, as we talked about before, this idea that I was just a piece of celery. It was really sticking in my cross. So I decided to be a writer and really have control over story. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the end of season two on Buffy, you know, Drusilla takes up with Angel and basically Spike knocks her over the head and, and kidnaps her and takes her off. And that's the end of the season. And I, my question is, what happens when she wakes up? You know, how are they going to get back together? So I, um, I wrote a comic that, that I thought would realistically put them back as a couple. But it starts with um, her 
asleep, dreaming of Angel and murmuring his name, and Spike just losing it, throwing her through a window into the sunshine where she's burning to death, and he drives over her with her his car as he leaves. Uh, <laughs> and then she gets really mad about that. And uh, so she, she takes up with a necromancer to get back at him, and all sorts of hilarity ensues. But at the end of the, at the end of the thing, they they have a beautiful romantic makeup scene and a makeout scene. But in behind uh, behind them is a big pile of burning corpses. That is, that is my idea. Um, anyway, uh, and then then there was a more recent one called Into the Light that I wrote uh, after way after Buffy was done. It was it was an idea I had for a spike tv movie um joss called me up and said that he was thinking about doing one and was i interested i was like well hell yeah what's the story man and he's like ah, i got nothing i'm like oh come on you got to have some idea <laughs> I got do you have an inspiration and he's like well i got a, a line from a movie and i said well what is it and he goes okay this is aragorn from lord of the rings i have no hope for myself <laughs> and i'm like well, that's pretty dark, dude. I don't know if that's going to work right. for a TV show. He's like, what do you got, man? I'm like, well, give me a few days. So I came up with this uh, the story of Spike's just starting the journey of redemption. Because he's gotten this soul, but he doesn't know what to do with it yet. And my, the, whole, the whole thing was, is how do you do that story without retreading angels? Because that, that kind of story was already done of, of a vampire uh, coming to redemption, a uh, vampire with a soul coming to redemption. So I, I, I just thought, you know, you want to flip it on his head. So if Angel is a, is a mythic character and he's thinking about his soul, drinking port wine in a mansion, big fireplace behind him, Spike should be homeless and starving to death because he can't figure out how to feed himself without killing anybody. He can't figure out how to house himself without squatting. And he, he, he can't figure out how to clothe himself without ripping off the clothes. He's, he has no experience being a moral right. person. Right. Uh, so he's really in trouble. Um, I, wanted him, uh, I wanted him to try to play the lover and get, uh, fail at that. I wanted him to try to, to be a hero and get his ass handed to him. Um, but I wanted him to find a new pair of boots. I wanted his boots to be falling apart in the beginning of it because they're old. And I wanted him to be able to find a new pair of boots without killing anybody and without stealing them and to do it in a moral way. And that little tiny step toward redeeming himself to right. learning how to exist in the world. That, that was my idea. That's smart. Yeah, I like that. Shifting over to uh, voiceover work, you've lent your voice to so many animated series and video games like Superhero Squad, Spider-Man, Star Wars, DuckTales. Do, do you have a favorite voiceover character to create and why? That's a good question. Uh, I don't, don't probably... Having a favorite is kind of difficult, but there is one guy who's a fairy from um, the Herod Dresden Files, and he, is, uh, he, he does not like human beings, does not understand what you people do at all. Very weird what you people do, but he likes pizza a lot, so he'll go kill people for pizza. Uh, I like him a lot. 
I like Bob the Skull, who is a disembodied spirit who resides in a skull, but um, he's also a pervert. He's always frustrated <laughs> because Harry won't let him out of the skull to go get pornography. Uh, so he's always begging for that, but he never gets it. Um, a lot of great, you know, I don't know. Yeah, a lot of great characters. I enjoyed doing uh, Lex Luthor for, um, for wasn't, what was, there was a, uh, a movie. Oh, the animated movie. It actually did very well. I'll think of it later. Anyway, um, I played him as I imagined Hugh Hefner would play him. Because oh he was, yeah, he, he, he was, um, he kind of was uh, seducing Lois Lane in, in the script. And so I played him very, you know, very kind of, hi, how are you doing? Let's go play jazz, you know? <laughs> um, and then, then they hired me to do Lex for an online video game. Uh, and I started, I was in the booth doing the same voice that I used for the, for the movie. And they're like, James, um, have you seen the version of Lex that you're doing? We have a character rendering if you want to check it out. Can you come in the booth, please? And I go in the booth, and Lex Luthor's got, like, body armor and, ro and rockets on his shoulder and stuff. And I'm like, oh, oh, butch it up a little bit? And they're like, yeah, maybe a little bit butch it up. Yeah. <laughs> so no, no smoking jackets. <laughs> no. So you got all these ideas. Lex Luthor was like, oh, I'm going to get you. <laughs> I, you were trying yeah. to get all fancy and they were like no we just need the over the top tough yeah that's great yeah or one of one of my favorite experiences was doing dragon ball super that was awesome um i i'm a fan of dragon ball z uh oh. which helped me raise my son actually uh he was seven years old when we started watching it and like as far as i'm concerned the lead character of dragon ball is a guy's name Goku is the perfect man. He's the perfect template. He's humble, he's goofy, and he's peaceful. If you give him his choice, he will be chasing butterflies with his kids in the backyard. But if you attack his family or his planet, he will roast you. And that, to me, is a man. Right. Uh, and then you have Vegeta, who is also very powerful, but he's very short, and he's kind of like an overgrown boy in a man's body and he's always creating chaos to try to prove himself to be a man not realizing that he already is so i'm a big fan so i did a horrible movie a live action movie based on dragon ball z called dragon ball evolution which really wasn't anything about dragon ball at all uh and it just so embarrassed and later got to know the director of the American voiceover for Dragon Ball Z and all of the Dragon Ball properties. And uh, I begged him, I heard about a whole new series called Dragon Ball Super. And I was like, can I just have four lines on your show just for redemption, please? Cause I'm tired of going to conventions and having people like, so what happened with Dragon Ball evolution, man? <laughs> and I, I wanted to be able to talk about, you know, I'm, I'm in the real one now. And they gave me the main villain for the for the series. Wow. And I just, that was amazing. That's awesome. You haven't been such a fan, too. You know, I know it's a big part of your life. Um, you've been in a band, Ghosts of the Robot, almost 20 years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Which yeah. Is, an, is an amazing accomplishment for any band. Um, where did your love, love for music come from, and when did it really start, and, and how did that all happen? It started with my dad playing guitar for me. 
a long time ago, you know, when I was a little kid. And, uh, and I, started, I started really seriously trying to learn guitar when I was in junior high school and then was in a band. I was kind of a satellite member of a band called Vandals in high school, played a lot of Clash. We were actually pretty good. Um, I w and then I decided uh, to, to try to pursue acting rather than music. I was actually, I was playing in bars at 13 uh, a lot. Uh, I was playing exclusively James Taylor songs. I, would play, I refused to play anyone else because I think I, I thought everybody else was, was uh, not as good. They're all hacks. And the funny thing is I tried to sound like James Taylor with my voice. So this little 13-year-old with a big blonde afro trying to sound like James Taylor. Uh, I think it would be hilarious if I could go back in time. I would love it. to pay to see. I would pay to see this. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, yeah. but but the guitar kind of went into my private life uh, when I when I went to college for acting and stayed there for a long time. Uh, and then when I when I did Buffy, an interview asked me if I played any musical instruments. So I told them, you know, kind of what I just told you. And then somebody at a club kind of figured out, hey, I don't know if this guy's good or not, but it doesn't really matter because if he comes he's on this TV show. So right. if he comes, we'll sell a lot of tickets. So they, I started getting invited to clubs and I, I wasn't very good at all. <laughs> Did you know that? Or were you just like, you learned? No, I knew it. I oh, knew it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I was trying, but you know, I was very rusty and I, I was playing a lot of Bruce Springsteen. I was playing uh, Tom Waits, uh, some cheap trick stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I remember I was at, one of the nicer clubs in LA. Oh, what's the name of that club? Anyway. Um, and someone came in to the uh, dressing room and said pink was in the house. And I was like, Oh no, pink is going to see me suck. This is terrible. <laughs> and sure enough, at the end of the show, pink was nowhere to be found, man. She walked out, but good for her. No. Uh, but I, I got, I got, I got better. As time went on, uh, the rust, was beaten away and I and I started to get pretty good actually it was just me and the guitar uh and then I was rehearsing for one of these gigs and this 18 year old came up to the stoop on my apartment and he had just moved from Sacramento and he was my next door neighbor now a guy named Charlie DeMars and he gave me the CD of his band in in uh in Sacramento that was getting airplay called Power Animal and the CD was amazing it was it was so good uh, and we decided to start a band. Um, and uh, we, we kicked around, you know, songs we were working on and stuff like that. And when we decided to have a band, he said, you know, I have a rhythm section. I have a, a guitarist. I have a bassist and a drummer who I worked with in Power Animal. They're really very good. But, it, of course, if you want to look at other people, we can look at that, too. And I'm like, no, let's check your guys out. Where are they? And he said, well, actually, right now they're in New York at Lincoln Center playing jazz, but they'll be back next week. And I'm like, how old are they? And he's like, 16 and 17. I'm like, yeah, let's meet those guys. Let's definitely meet these guys. And I met them, and they were phenomenally good. Right. Uh, and so uh, we started a band, and two weeks later recorded our first album. And then about a month after that, we're in Europe touring it. And it all just fell together really quickly. We, talk, we touched on this a little bit probably before we even started recording, but the convention circuit, uh, Comic-Con circuit, yeah. um, you've been doing it for a long time, I 
think. Oh, yeah. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. I mean, we started in 2005. I've been on the circuit forever. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a fun, it's it's crazy, and meet a ton of fans, a ton of people. Um, what, what ultimately, like, when did you decide to start doing those shows? Do you, you know, do you remember? And then also, do you have any, like, really mem- memorable experiences while doing Comic-Con? Yeah, you know, um, I started going to conventions when I was 13. I was a Star Trek fan. Okay. Uh, and I, I had a perfect Spock outfit, man. I was cosplaying before we called the cosplay. Uh, t- perfect tunic. I had the boots. I had the pointed ears. Uh, I had the tricorder. I had everything. And a big blonde afro because I couldn't control my hair. And uh, James but Taylor I was cool. Yeah, my James Taylor voice. <laughs> and, I, and I couldn't uh, – I was cool for the first time. The girls wanted to talk to me for the first time in my life because I had the best phaser at the convention. <laughs> and um, That's great. I love conventions. Everyone's beautiful. Everyone's safe. And you can be whatever you want to be. The last question we had, we wanted to give you an opportunity uh, to, to share with fans, you know, what things you're currently working on and um, anything of, of interest. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't think it's been on yet. Uh, let's see. Leverage 2.0. Uh, just was in one episode, but I got to play a really interesting douchebag for that. Uh, Leverage was a very popular TV program about uh, con men that uh, do use their, their, their con men toolkit to help people. Uh, and it was very popular. Uh, it, I think it got the um, Golden Globe Award for best, uh, best series, but then got canceled the same year. Oh, and, wow. uh, then the network was like, oops, sorry, let's have you back. And so, that, so, so they, they're recreating it. They've got most of the same cast, uh, and it's called Leverage 2.0. Uh, I got to got to work with um, Christian Kane, who I worked with on Angel, uh, and um, Noah Wiley, yeah. who uh, I worked with in a play in Los Angeles. Now that was just fabulous. And then uh, a series that uh, is a update of Upstairs Downstairs. It's not sci-fi or fantasy. Um, Upstairs Downstairs is an English television show a yeah. while back about an English manor, and it, it focuses on both the rich people and also the servants, and both sides are human. Uh, and they, and there's, a, there's a cultural divide between the two, but both of the sides are, are human. And so this update is, takes place in Napa Valley in Northern California, and all the rich people are the wine growers and the ranchers, and all of the servants are the Latinos that work the land. And there's a huge gulf between them, and they're all human beings. Yeah. And I, I thought that that was uh, a gr- an amazing update. It really uh, is. It's called Casa yeah. Grande. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Want to see more of James Marsters? What are you waiting for? You can binge all seven seasons of Buffy and all five seasons of Angel on Hulu and Amazon right now. You can also watch Runaways on Hulu or Disney+. Plus. Dragon Ball and DuckTales are on Hulu. Torchwood is on HBO Max. And be sure to check out Ghost of the Robot on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, and wherever you stream music. Before we wrap, I want to toss it over to Amber for some Mother's Day fun facts. Hiya friends, fun facts guru Amber here. 
Just like last month, I will once again be highlighting a badass female and sharing some tidbits about her. Since May is Mother's Day month, I'll be featuring the iconic mother-daughter duo, Alice and Callie Little. Both characters were first featured at Zenoscope in the Return to Wonderland series, which launched in 2007. Co-founders Joe Brusha and Ralph Tedesco found recent success with their flagship universe, The Grim Fairy Tales. It was then that writer Raven Gregory pitched them the Wonderland series, thinking it would be a great twisted version to add to the universe. Callie's character was developed by Raven, who wanted to have her hair dyed black to signify her resentment and differences with her mom. It was revealed in the second storyline that she did, in fact, have blonde hair like her mother, Alice. Their age difference is somewhere around 20 years, and spoilers, even though Alice died in the OG series, she still lives on in the Wonderland universe. The mother-daughter duo was such an incredible bond and selling point for the company that eventually they launched another duo we all love, Sela and Skye. The Wonderland series has over 15 different arcs with 50 different revisits. One of the most notable is when Callie rules over Wonderland. The series is the best-selling series of all time at Zenoscope with around 5 million copies sold. And if you listen to our latest Everything Zen, you learn that writer Raven Gregory went full method acting and took shrooms for the first time while writing the OG series. Can't wait to go further down the rabbit hole with more Wonderland issues to come. And that'll do it for this month's podcast. Thank you to Ralph, Chris, Amber, and M.L. Miller, and of course, our featured guest, James Marsters. I'm your host, Mark Sells. Thank you for listening. As Robert Frost once wrote, when the sun is out and the wind is still, you're one month on in the middle of May. We'll see you all again next month, right here on Everything Zen.